The following program contains views and opinions that do not necessarily reflect those of KMRE staff or of the Spark Museum of Electrical Invention. Welcome to Community Voice Radio Show. I'm Junga Subedar, and your moderator today. We are your uniquely eco-feminist, indigenous feminist radio show coming to you from Bellingham, Washington, the deep north of the Pacific Northwest. And we have really special guests here today, like we do every week. We have Rosalind Guillen from C2C, Michelle Stelovich, the president of the Northwest Washington Central Labor Council, David Bacon, who's a photojournalist and immigrant rights activist. So welcome today. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Jacob. I wanted to also mention that today is a really special day for another reason. It is the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's death. He was killed in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968. He, he was fighting for the labor rights of sanitation workers and um, sacrificed his life for the rights and dignity of the workers down there. So we want to acknowledge that and make sure that we understand how much our work has been informed by his legacy and that we probably wouldn't be as far as we are with all the current movements um, if it weren't for the sacrifices and the work that he did. It's interesting um, to me because to me from March 31st to April 23rd is a really important time every year because Cesar Chavez was born on March 31st. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, and then Cesar died on April 23rd. And so it's like this period of time that I think about and reflect on the work that was done by folks like Martin Luther King or leaders like Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez for the rights of workers and how workers that are in such vulnerable um, situations and in, in political battles that is like, you know, um, David and Goliath type situations, how still they, they prevailed and they didn't stop. It continued, the struggle continued. And I think that I just take try to take time during this period to reflect. It's more about we always think about the birthdays, right? This is when, and it's 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 easy to me. It's important, but it's like yes, it's it's a good thing to think about. This great person was born, and then they went on to do these these things. But let's really talk about their deaths and why they left the world early from struggles that are really important to us. And I think we need to spend more time talking about the reason they're no longer with us, that they're, that it was almost purpose. Well, Martin Luther King is clearer, right? There was an assassination for his, the, his, the voice and the positions that he was taken. And um, I think we need to spend more time really discussing that, the political analysis of, about why they're no longer with us and why they left this world. They left us... Um, sooner than they probably should have. Well, definitely sooner than they should have. Yeah. Of course, that period also goes on to 
May the 1st, which was historically the International Workers' Day, but especially since 2006, it's been the day when immigrant rights marchers and unions and immigrant communities themselves come out to fight for people's rights. So it's a good way to end that period. It's intense. It's an intense period of spring, Mm -hmm. right? And also I think about it's about time to also reflect on what they've done, but it's also a time to renew um, your commitment to the to the fight for um, equal rights for wages that's what their lives were about safety in the workplace and those are the things it's this recommitment to this fight that is so important to individuals people my neighbor my you know my whole family all, you know just our communities and and it just doesn't end that we just just one year goes by and we think about you know all the things that have happened but it's the future that we need to hope for and hope that one day that we can just be at our homes and and there'll be fair wages. That's what I think about. But the mm-hmm. fight is important. That, that we actually have homes, right? <laughs> that we so, have homes. There's so many workers right. that yeah, don't yeah. have homes. And making sure that everybody has a home. How do, mm-hmm. how do we get there? But, I mean, you know, we have examples in other places, and so it's time that we, you know, I think that I was reflecting today – um, when I was thinking about Martin Luther King, that we've come a long way, but we're somehow, we've also gone back. And it's, it's concerning to me that I'm thinking some of the things that happened 50 years ago are happening again, and how do we learn from our past? Because if we're, if we're repeating ourselves, then we're not, and that it's not acceptable to repeat because it costs too many people's lives. It's already mm-hmm. cost too many people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with all of you here. And um, Martin Luther King made the ultimate sacrifice by many measures. It was his own life. And he was fighting for um, human rights, civil rights, dignity for uh, people and the work that they do and the way they contribute to our economy and our culture and our society. And I think one of the things that he was trying to do is bring... Um, poor people and um, black and brown people together in that in his movement and he saw a lot of the economic injustice the root of it uh, connected with racial justice and I think that that was a very powerful thing that he was trying to do right before his death and many think that that's probably why he was assassinated, because that would have been a great thing. That, And, Michelle, you talked about something we can learn from and recommitment. Maybe that's where we have to kind of start and look at that we need to come together more and have that kind of racial analysis of our labor movements as well. The labor movement is looking at itself because we know we have a history of having been racist and Sexist, but there is a real movement to really look at ra- race and labor, and to analyze ourselves, and to accept the the big mistakes that we've made, and to say that really a union is meant is supposed to be a place for everybody. That our halls are big enough for everyone. It isn't. No one should be excluded, and it's hard work, and it's not an easy thing. But we believe that it's we have to face it. 
and that we have to face our past and we have to look towards a way in which no matter if you're brown, white, whatever, that you can be part of a union if you want, but all workers are should be available to, to be in the halls of, of our union halls anytime that they need help or support. Right. And how do you do that? How do you allow all of those people to be included in that union hall or in that union? And what does it look like when they're there? Um, Rosalinda, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, my only experience has been just the work that we've done, you know, with with the labor movement. And the fact is, um, most, all my experience when it comes to farm workers entering the House of Labor for the most part, in fact, I, I think I can say pretty much every single time except for possibly a couple of the national conventions in Las Vegas with the national AFL-CIO big guys, right, have been pretty positive um, in terms of the labor movement allowing the space and following a process where farm workers could have that voice. Traditionally, mm-hmm. it's been tough. I mean, I think it's the history shows us that the national AFL-CIO rejected um, the United Farm Workers of Washington State at first to be members of the of the AFL-CIO. It, it was a fight, and I I'm not even sure that. Um, in fact, I I think I am pretty sure. I think that Caesar and the union didn't actually want to be part of the AFL-CIO. Um, it was something that had to happen. David might have more history on this, but um, I think for for me, I go back. These are structures that exist today that have been in place for a long time when you're talking about the labor movement. And I think it's time to to evolve them. But I always think of, for me, the model is actually the founding of the United Farm Workers itself, which is the only union that we have ever had that has any kind of power, right? And um, I've seen photos of the original board of the United Farm Workers that Caesar, you know, founded. And we had black farm workers, Filipino farm workers, Mexican farm workers, and white farm workers, uh, members of the board. So it was a very, it, it was representative of who was working at the fields in the Central Valley of California at that time. And it was beautiful. You know, when I look at that original, it's kind of like the dream, I think, of of everybody, of what a labor union should be representative of it, of the workers in, in its industry. And um, I always hold that in myself as an example of what what it should be, what it could be, and the fact that there was a moment, you know, when in the agricultural industry, all the farm workers there were were looking back at their history and looking forward into the formation of a union that could have that democratic process of workers representing themselves and negotiating their own wages with the industry. So um, I'm forever hopeful that... As farm workers, we need everybody, and we need to be in every space, and we grab at every thread of hope that we can find where there would be that ex- inclusion uh, for farm worker rights. But it, as it stands right now, um, even Familias Unidas por la Justicia is not a member of the national AFL-CIO. They pay dues to the Washington State um Labor Council, and I think they're members of the Northwest Washington Central Labor Council. Right, they're dele- they have delegates. They're delegates, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ramon, I believe, is a delegate um, to the Northwest Washington Central Labor Council. And from what I've seen, it's been an amazing welcome for farm workers to be uh, members of the Northwest Washington Central Labor Council. Lots of support, yeah. I don't know if you had anything to add to that, David, to the... 
Well, you know, I think that we have sort of two traditions in our labor movement, and one is that tradition of exclusion that you were talking about, Michelle, of the, you know, racial lines and the um, saying jobs are for whites only or for men only. But we also have another tradition in it. You know, the Longshore Union, for instance, um, the reason why they won the general strike in 1934 was because they said that they would fight to end the um, color line on the waterfront. And now, where I come from in San Francisco, the Longshore Union Local 10 is not only a majority black union, it's probably about 75% of its members are African American. So um, I think we've had part of our labor movement that has stood up for racial justice and racial equality. You know, the United Farm Workers, the reason why it's called United was because part of it was Caesar and the National Farm Workers um, Association, but the other part of it was the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, which was a Filipino union. And the Filipinos played a very, very important role, not just in that strike in 1965 where the union was born, but all the way from the 1930s and the 1940s and the 1950s on, they belonged to a lot of different unions, some of them in the CIO and some of them the ILWU. They belonged to the Longshore Union itself, too. And they were deported for it. You know, the U- or the U.S. tried to deport um, people for having stood up for their rights in the um, 40s and the 50s. You know, Harry Bridges, uh, a white Australian, but also Ernesto Mangawang and Chris Mansalves, who were big deportation cases in the 1940s here in Washington State. And so they fought against that and for the rights of workers to join unions and the right to, well, human rights, political rights for immigrants and people of color, too. There's also some really militant... Um electrical IBW locals that have always been really, um, you know, racially integrated and supportive. Uh, and I know I remember with fondness the ILWU in the Bay Area because they have always stood with farm workers. I mean, they're like right there the minute you ask, and they don't just say it. They totally stand with you, and they send money. <laughs> they support the workers. Mm-hmm. They're great. I love them. Great. Um, so we're going to go on a short break, and you'll have an opportunity to listen to the rest of the song by an indigenous um, artist, uh, Sister Mantos, and the song is Peyote. You're listening to Community Votes Radio Show. I'm Jenga, and we have our guests here today, David Bacon, Michelle Stelovich, and Rosalind Nguyen. And we're talking about um, racial justice and immigration and labor rights, and also how that informs um, the special day today where 50 years ago Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Yes, and I think, you know, um, just thinking about, because, Michelle, you were also speaking earlier about it's one thing to remember, but what are we doing to continue the legacy? And I think that, you know, the legacy of, because our forum last night was race, 
um, economy, economy and borders, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it, it we tried to combine the whole idea of why it is that we're having to deal with H-2A workers, why Onesto Silva died at Sarvanan. But I think, you know, reflecting today also on the fact that this was the day that Martin Luther King died. And, the, and, and what was on his shoulders at the time, I think, is really important to think about, that he was moving in a direction, I think, where a, a whole new world was opening up to him about the possibility of working together, of diff people of different races working together on a very fundamental um, connection of economic justice, of actually thinking that everybody deserves a good job, good wages, and a future for their families, that it it didn't matter. You know, Janga, you were mentioning that he was talking to white workers, you know, uh, low-income white workers, poor people in Appalachia, and there was this, and we've read in the history books how in, you know, many years before that when white people and poor people, indentured servants and slaves, formed alliances and worked together to, for liberation, how that was, you know, destroyed, that connection was destroyed. I think that that's, that was a danger that Martin Luther King was bringing. Corporations couldn't stand to think that through the formation of a, of a union, if we could go beyond the race line and black people could form their own union and then work work in solidarity with white unions that all of a sudden corporations would not have the division between workers and they wouldn't be able to exploit workers as much as they could. And I think that for somebody to have to die for the benefit of the corporations is just outrageous. And that, for me, makes me feel even stronger and more responsible about what's happening now with the H-2A program on many levels, right? That it is totally about profit. And it's about profiting off of people of color, workers of color coming into the United States for mostly white-owned agri-corporations. So it comes all the way around. And how do we honor Martin Luther King? First, by remembering not so much all of the great accomplishments in his life, but about the incredible power that was used to destroy him, to kill him. Um, and I think that that's something that I hold forever present. And I think that that's, that's what people are trying to do right now, is scare us into not continuing our opposition to the H-2A program. Well, you know, Dr. King was also an ally of other people in the civil rights movement. You talked about black and brown unity. The Dr. King was an ally of Burt Corona, of Cesar Chavez, during that same period, and one of the accomplishments of the movement that they were able to achieve in, in those years was getting rid of our previous H-2A program, which was called in those years the Parcero program, but there was basically the same kind of thing, you know, um, workers who had no rights really in, in the U.S. were brought here just to work and then sort of kicked out at the end of the their period of usefulness to growers at the end of, the, of a harvest season. And so they got rid of the um, Percentral program, and then the following year they substituted an immigration policy that was based on families and communities rather than an immigration policy that just simply looked at trying to supply labor to growers at the cheapest possible rate and treating people as though they were just work animals with no rights and no future and no ability to belong to the communities that were surrounding them. And so Dr. King was part of that 
movement as well, too, you know, right along mm-hmm. with uh, other leaders of the Chicano yeah. civil rights movement. There's mm-hmm. a, a, a treasured letter from Martin Luther King to Caesar in La Paz in King, California, where he expresses the solidarity of his movement with, with the farm worker movement. And it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing commitment of solidarity and support in, in this, during the civil rights movement, right? Connecting East and West struggles of people of color. It's a beautiful letter. Yeah, maybe we can um, get a copy of that yeah, letter and um, read it and publish it online for folks to read too. It is. It's really beautiful. I'll look for it. I'm sure it's a public document. In fact, I was looking at it online somewhere else. So I'll, I'll look for it. Mm-hmm. So I guess I keep coming back as to now what's next? You know, what is it? What are the steps that we take today that we take that are just even if it's just in ourselves to make a difference? Because, I mean, remembrance is important. Because you can't forget your past. Forgetting the past means you repeat it. But how do you hold that and remember, what is the step that I do today that makes it different? And what are you willing to stand up for? You know, and I think about my nephew who's 16, and he was trying to, having this debate about whether or not to go out and stand with all the other kids. And I'm thinking, well, how do we empower all the people that we know and how do we empower ourselves to take that stand that when somebody's saying, or we watch it in the grocery store, or we see it in our neighborhood, or you're sitting in an airport and you're watching something happen, how do you stand up in that moment and stand up for somebody's rights? Isn't that kind of what we're talking about? It's not just the big things. It's the little things that we do every day. And how do we make that better? And so that's kind of what I think about. And as I think about as a leader, as a, a president of an organization, how do I, how do I make that happen? You know, how mm-hmm. do you stand up and make sure that no matter, even if it's not the popular thing or the thing that everybody wants you to do, that, but it's the right thing, how do you stand and do that? And it's, it's making that commitment to doing that no matter what. I mean, so what? If my term ends in two years because I did, I stood up for the right thing, that's okay because I have to live with myself too. But I want to make sure that, that if we stand, that we stand in unison and we make sure that we're standing for what is right for our futures mm-hmm. and for the future of the people that we know and for all people. Mm-hmm. I mean, Michelle, if you're talking about how to – regular folks and workers mm-hmm. uh, go out and stand out there for for ideas and causes that they believe in. Yeah. I can speak a little bit about the communities that we work with, that there are a lot of people that don't come out but mm-hmm. do want to, and they're directly and mostly impacted by a lot of the issues and um, problems that we see. But they are burdened by by what's going on in their lives, working um, mm-hmm. two jobs, having kids, no child care, uh, living in, under poor conditions uh, with very uh, unhealthy food and very little access to basic needs. So I feel like it goes to a very fundamental level of how do we support people um, 
that don't even have basic needs met so that they can have the energy and the time to come out and fight for their rights. But I also think them standing up and just saying, you know, making their life, uh, just doing what they do and going to work and providing for your family is also a really strong thing. I mean, that's a hard thing to do today. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that it means standing up isn't necessarily that you stand up on the street corner or you stand up doing something, you know, in this huge group. I think it's also about just doing your everyday life and having a conscience about it. But, but then when, but I see that I have, I came from a union family. I don't know what it's not to have been in a union. And so then in some ways I have privilege from that. But then it's not to stand mm-hmm. on that privilege or live in that privilege, but to make sure that it's a shared thing because I know that if they had a union too, they have an ability to take a stand and not be fired. And I know that they have a way to have agreements and, and make change. That, that when they sit down with management in a union contract, you are equal to your manager. And, and when you're doing that negotiation, that is, you are equals and you're, you have a ground. But you, it's hard when that isn't a right that you have or if you don't have a union to back you, then it's very hard. And I understand that. And then I, that's why I want everyone to have the ability to have that contract, to mm-hmm. have a union contract or collective bargaining agreement, because that does give the average worker a way to, ha- to take a stand to say this isn't right or to get a wage that is fair. Because not being able to have a place to live and enough food and you're working two jobs is not right. Um, you should be able to work a job and live in the community that you work and be able to have enough. Mm-hmm. And to support your family. And support your family. Yeah, living wages, we talk about that a lot. And um, I think unions are, I really respect the um, history of unions and what is the dignity that it has given to a lot of workers. Um, I think there are other models as well that give that Uh, more equitable relationship uh, between workers and the employers or other management um, people in a company. But um, yes, I think that going back to the basics where they just have a dignified job and rights in their workplace is, is a huge thing and a huge way we can support community members. I know David wants to say something, but I also wanted to say that, um, you know, going back to Caesar and Martin Luther King, I think that what the reason that they were posed, again, posed such a danger to corporations was because they were actually talking about all that, that if, if they managed to grow a movement strong enough for mm-hmm. poor workers to organize and have a union or whatever means of self-organization and liberation they could muster to have that equity equitable mm-hmm. like negotiation yeah equitable mm-hmm. cooperation with their bosses right that that was going to create a dynamic change and and then what's going to happen is if a worker has a decent wage has a a workplace where he won't be fired and he can defend himself he's actually going to be able to participate in voting in the community, he's actually going to have a voice not just at work, mm-hmm. but in the public arena of politics and the city council and 
all these other places where change can be affected. Right. And I think that that was really two things was a big fear. One was the economic power that some of the corporations were going to lose because they would have to raise wages and benefits. And the other is the political power that they would then lose outside of the workplace that they already had. And I think for the growers in California, I know that was a big, it's a big issue. It's a big issue in Washington state today that the agricultural industry has huge political power in the legislature where they make decisions about workers' rights from the top all the way down so that, and I think we talked about that last night in the forum, how the Department of Labor and Industries has been structured with political power from growers that have been elected to the legislature who then implement structural changes in the rulemaking and the guidelines and the processes where now Literally, in the Department of Labor and Industries, there is no way to find an employer guilty of killing a worker because they've changed the process. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's really the big fear of all of these corporations and all of this media right now today. I mean, so you, you have to, like, compare what was happening then and how they handled things. They could kill people, which they, mm-hmm. they assassinated Martin Luther King because it was right. getting, it, you know, when a black man is actually building alliances with white workers, right, it's time, you know, they killed him because that could have happened. So I think that we're at a similar period right now with the H-2A program and the opposition that we're building toward, to, to this program that has been politically implemented in Washington state um, in such a arrogant way of this really totally disconnecting the importance of the life of a Mexican farm worker in Washington state because he's contracted in this program. It's like, it doesn't mean anything, right? And legally, it doesn't mean anything. It's been legalized that it's okay to work a worker to death and all you get is a fine, you know? I mean, it's like... Not even a big one. Not even a big no. one, exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's a it's a really good connection. I think it's it's a good discussion that we all need to have about... The history, what happened then, what's happening now, and and like Michelle said, okay, what do we do? How do we do this now? What? How do we counter this messaging? But also, how do we counter this political behavior? It's clear the agricultural industry in Washington State is controlling almost every aspect of what happens in growing, growing all crops in the state of Washington. The process, the prices, the wages land zoning, everything. Everything is being controlled by these large corporations. And now the lives of workers. Now the lives of workers. You know, in California this last year, we got um, overtime pay for farm workers, making us, I think, after Hawaii, the second state in the United States because farm workers were written out of Mm -hmm. the federal labor law in the 30s um, that governed overtime and a lot of other rights of workers. Um, basically by Dixiecrat members mm-hmm. of Congress right. who mm-hmm. said they didn't want to see black workers in the South, especially working in the mm-hmm. fields, have any kind of voice or any kind of rights. And the, one of the reasons why we got this law in California is because 
we now have in the state legislature uh, the sons and daughters of farmworker families who have been able to kind of use the political power that grew out of the farm workers union and the farm workers movement um, in the last 50 years um, to get elected to office. I think that's one reason why growers want the H-2A program is because when you have communities of workers in which um, you know the sons and daughters of farm worker families um, become politically active and get elected mm-hmm. to the legislature, they'll change the law, and that law change is going to cost the growers money, which this one this one did. H two A workers are prevented by the structure of this program from becoming members of communities because they are hired in another country, they are brought, and they are kept isolated from everybody else. Um, then they are sent back to the country that they come from at the end of the harvest season without being able to have families, without being able to participate in politics. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a way for growers to have a labor force that is inexpensive and vulnerable and also one that's not going to get political power. You know, today the the mayor of Delano, where the grape strike started in 1965, is a Filipino. Um, in 1965, if you had said that a Filipino would be a mayor of Delano, people would have gone, you're living in another world um, because growers controlled everything politically. Mm-hmm. So ha- being able to have a stable community that organizes and organizes unions and the other kinds of organizations that people have, churches for that matter, or all the kinds of organizations that people have, um, that's a danger to growers. And so they want us to work, but as just simply sort of beasts of burden, Mm -hmm. animals Mm -hmm. that perform the work and then sort of disappear as soon as the work is over. That's right. But Mm -hmm. we're human beings. We don't disappear. And so we need to make sure that we all have the ability to belong to the communities where we're going to have a base and where we're going to get some power to change our lives. And I think as human beings also, it's difficult to have guest workers come in and have a community ignore them to the point where they're non-existent. And I think when a community gets to the level where they're totally invisible and they're not seen, they're not touched, there's no connection, Mm -hmm. that is a cultural change and a shift in the way that we live as a community. And that's why I think this this is so important, that if if we allow this program to put that kind of a, a human barrier between humans where we can actually normalize another human being coming in as a beast of burden and then that person leaves and then we don't connect or even yeah. dying in yeah. the field and dying in front of us but we don't do anything about it and we're eating the food that they're producing it's a shift in our humanity you know there's this is this is for me it's it's so big it's such a big shift in in a local community to be allowing these kinds these kinds of programs to be used by our local farmer farms We're going to go on a short break now, and the song that you're going to hear over the break is uh, Strange Fruit, kind of to um, commemorate Martin Luther King today. Barren strange fruit 
blood on the leaves and blood at the roots black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees you're li- listening to Community Voice Radio Show. I'm Junga, and I'm here with guests Rosalinda Guillen, Michelle Stelovich, and David Bacon. And we're talking about race and labor and borders, um, borders and the anniversary of um, Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King's um, death today. So I wanted to ask you all a question. Um, because before the break, David was talking about uh, some of the laws um, in agriculture and immigration laws that were passed. And originally, a lot of these laws that uh, were very, uh, still are very oppressive were based in re- racist motives, really, to try to oppress um, black workers or workers of color. And if they are um, based in that, why should white workers today care about those kinds of labor laws and agricultural laws that are oppressive, that are more racist? Why should that matter to white workers and white union people? So, so first of all, I think most of our unions are not just white. I mean, they've, they're changed, and they're, there's, and we haven't maybe caught up. But why should we care? Well, we already know that attack to, an attack on one is an attack on all of us. That we know that if you're going after brown people or black people, that you're actually just going after every worker. It's just an excuse. We know that in right-to-work laws that were a way to separate white workers from black workers. Um, that was part of right-to-work laws was to keep um, racism alive bet- and just separate people. And so when we talk about unions, we're talking about being unified. That's also what it means to us. And why should we care? It's like, when is it a dollar more important than a person? And in my world, and and I hope in everybody's, that that is never, that a dollar is never more important than a person. So that's why we care, is that people should have a right to dignity and respect and a place to live. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just not words. They're just not a thing that we say it, because we do know what the cost is and we do understand that there's a price that's paid for our labor and that having a fair return is there. But I don't know if I have like an easy answer. I mean, there's. I think there's been a, a real effort to make sure that we've forgotten our past that we don't understand the importance of our humanity and that we have gotten this value of greed and that we need to change how we think about our world and ourselves and each other. So are you saying that um, you also agree that racism has been used to separate workers and to implement 
unfair laws and regulations. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. David, you David, can do probably... you have something to say to that, too? Well, um, yes, I think for sure. You know, one of the most important functions of racism is to keep the people in power in power. And so um, that has really negative effects on white workers as well, too. I can think of a couple of examples of that. You know, in California, we've been trying to get single-payer health care for a long time. And one of the reasons why we haven't been able to get it is because we still have certain electoral districts in the Central Valley, in the Salinas Valley, that are represented by very conservative Republicans who get voted into office by a white electorate that excludes immigrants, people who are non-citizens who cannot vote. If people who are non-citizens, who are, and who are we talking about? We're talking about overwhelmingly 95% of Mexican people, brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, if people were able to vote, then we would have progressive candidates and then progressive elected officials, and we would be able to pass single-payer health care, which would benefit all workers in California, regardless of what color or sex or race you were. So white workers lose out in that one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can have these kind of racist appeals by Trump or whoever to those people in those voting districts saying, you know, hey, immigrants, you know, they're here to steal your jobs. They're you know, undermining our social fabric or whatever the accusations are. And people get blinded by that and don't see um, what could happen if social change were possible. So that kind of social change that would give us single-payer health care is based on people being able to see beyond that and um, being able to unite with each other. You know, the price of the rise of the Klan in the South and the price of those exclusions that you were talking about of excluding black workers, for instance, from um, labor protection laws or from the right to organize a union. What happened in the South as a result of that? You know, you got the lowest standard of living in mm-hmm. the United States. Right. And we're talking about a lower standard of living for all people who live mm-hmm. there. So people pay a heavy price. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's also one thing I've learned in participating especially with um, people of faith and church groups in the things like the protests around the detention center. We have a big detention center in, in Richmond in the Bay Area where I live, is that um, I think that people are also motivated by their feelings of morality and fairness. If we're looking at things that um, that say to white people that racism is wrong, I think that we also have to talk about the morality of it as well, beyond just simply the self-interest arguments. I think self-interest arguments are very important to see how people lose. But I think also that um, racism represents a dehumanization of people. And I think that that's something that one of the well, one of the achievements of the civil rights movement, I think, was to convince lots of white people in the United States that racism was immoral and unethical, and you know that was something that we needed to stand up against, regardless of what color we were. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's an important part of it too. Mm-hmm. I think that looking at um, your question from the the ver- for me the 
the most basic fundamental um, reason, especially why we're opposing the H-2A program here in Whatcom County, is it, just that. I mean, I, I don't think there's a better example of laws and regulations that have been put together to exploit a very specific group of farm workers as the H-2A workers, because even the way that component for H-2A is put together in the state of Washington is even more exploitative than all of the regulations put together for domestic farm workers, especially around the protection for workers around pesticides mm -hmm. and other other labor rights issues. I mean, it's, it's like it's one level below us, <laughs> domestic farm workers, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think that that is our, our argument is that, and we're saying it, we as farm workers are saying, this is immoral. You are, this is, this is something that is wrong for us to, as a community, accept the normalization of this kind of regulatory process for H-2A workers. So I, I think when you look at the whole issue of how regulations and laws, why white workers should care, is because when you establish a law, legally it's supposed to cover everybody then there's a multi the layers in between there about how strongly you can implement it in mm -hmm. a biased manner to mm -hmm. only support to on, to let white workers you know have better benefits than workers of color and to not enforce a law equally so there's the beginning of it is you know that a law is, is implemented or is being written by somebody that's racist to begin with or somebody that wants a political power for their own industry and i'm just talking specifically yes all you elected legislators in the state of washington that are large growers that manage to get the money and that in washington state also the districts have been you know the the boundaries of of the districts have been changed so that Again, mostly people of Mexican descent do not have the ability to elect their own to the legislature. Mm -hmm. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that it's amazing to me the many levels that we have to go through, even if a law is written that's fair, the implementation of that law can be skewed and biased by racist people mm -hmm. in the process of how that law is supposed to be implemented. Mm -hmm. So it starts at the top mm -hmm. with these racist folks you know, right. being in power and then hiring and in, in um, appointing people to implement the law. It's huge. This mm -hmm. process is just, it's just huge. And it's, there's so much power involved in this that it can blow. I mean, people are, could go, oh, that's just too much. There's just no way to implement mm -hmm. that. But all we can say is then, so then are you, that's, you, when you look at all these things, right, why should white workers care well, they should care because uh, Ernesto Silva died out of, mm -hmm. you know, and you know if, if dehydration and, 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 and new malnutrition in your backyard. And, and I think that that's where it needs to come down to. It's unfortunate that a worker had to die, but bottom line is that's what happens. You will die. And at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're brown, black, or white, if that law is not implemented and enforced the way it's supposed to be in the workplace, right? Eventually, somebody's going to die. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just that's the nature of this whole process. That's right. I mean, that reminds me of how many civil rights laws we have on the books. But 
in the Constitution. We have an equal protection clause of our Constitution, but that's not implemented. And we forget that we have all those laws. If you have racist uh, policymakers and people in in power positions like Jeff Sessions (laughs) in the Department of Justice, we're not going to be able to enforce those civil rights laws. We're not going to be able to hold... um, people accountable when they target immigrant communities and communities of color. Um, they get Those laws are not f- doled out uh, in a fair manner or for everybody equally. They're very discriminatory. So even though yep. we have so many civil rights laws that Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in the 60s gave us, they're not being implemented right now because of our white supremacist culture and values. And that needs to be changed as well. It's it's not just the policies, but what do we value in our society exactly. and culture? Yep. You know, I also try to think about what we have in common as a way of answering the question that you you asked us. Um, you know, if, if we if working people in the state of Washington let Onesta Silva die without asking why he died without asking how how is it that we have this program that allows somebody to be treated as sort of like disposable labor to the point where you can die in a field and um, there's no punishment, there's no repercussions. You know, I think to myself, well, okay, what about Hanford? How many people died in Hanford Mm -hmm. from, and who were they? The nuclear plant. The nuclear plant. They were, I think, mostly white workers Mm -hmm. who died. And the same thing kind of happened to them, or maybe not the same. But here again, um, I'm sure in the the eyes of their families, they died without consequence to the people that killed them, the companies that ran that plant, and the kind of federal, you Mm -hmm. know, the lack of any kind of federal protection for them or any punishment for, um, you know, this sort of greed that that killed them. So uh, if we're looking for a way of, of saying to people who, for instance, live in central Washington, why should you care about whether Ernesto Silva died in that field and why the H-2A program is set up so that somebody can die in a field with no repercussions and no consequences – I think we can say, well, what happened to you? Mm-hmm, that's you right. Know, what happened to you? I come from a coal mining community in the northern panhandle of West Virginia. And when I was growing up, lung cancer was so severe <clears throat> in our community. It was 10 times the national average, I believe. And they were all white workers that died prematurely or got lung cancer and had to stop working. And um, there were no repercussions, and there are still no repercussions um, for the deaths and the um, disease and injury that people suffer from West Virginia. And Appalachia um, is one of the poorest, and probably it's no accident that it's one of the most exploited um, because of the coal industry there. And... That I, I when I when I think about that question, I think about the coal miners 
and the community that I grew up in, and that's why they should care. And I did go back there after Trump was elected, and as much as there is a lot of liberal democratic talk about the poor white workers that um, and people that voted for Trump, nobody I talked to personally voted for them, voted for him and his agenda. Um, certainly, there 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 was a county there that voted for him um, and a few other people, but it's not everybody, and I don't even know if it's the majority um, because they care about their health, they care about their families, and they want to live a peaceful life with clean water and a community where they can still grow a garden in without contamination and the mountaintop removal that's everywhere there that's devastated and flooded their streams and created mudslides where they can't even live anymore. So, yes, I I agree. I mean, I asked that question, but I I personally do believe that um, racism matters to all workers. I think it's how it's presented, and uh, I think it... um Corporations use it to, again, to divide because that is a way to keep the profits up. But I, I think more importantly than that, I know in the farm worker community, every time that there is a gain by farm workers, there is a harsh attack, a political attack from uh, powerful interests. And it's not a surprise that these attacks are coming against us after a union was formed. It, mm-hmm. it, it's because a union was formed that these attacks are happening. And, you know, as the union itself is incumbent, in the context of other labor unions, it's very small. In the context of a farm worker union, it is huge. It's 600 members. The first un- independent union formed in the nation, folks, mm-hmm. since 1986. It's a huge mm-hmm. accomplishment. And I think when they look at, when the corporate, corporate agricultural industries looks at that, and they remember Cesar Chavez, and it's like, hey, if we let these guys continue in this direction, gosh, the wages could really go up. And, and you know, and I can feel it's almost like palpable. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. palpable, right, that this has got to stop now. And the best way to stop this is to discredit the organizers, discredit the workers, and, and normalize the death of workers and the exploitation. I think there I think there's a real movement to normalize death of any worker. I mean I, I'm watching I mean there's that at Hanford you brought up there's beryllium. And we know that workers are dying and there's and that they're being fought to be able to have any benefits um, from the federal government to be to get even treatment. And it's dragging on and on for years, and they're not getting the treatment, and they're dying. And it doesn't matter the color of their skin. They're just, even though there's regulations, there's no, it's so hidden. And people go, what, why do you care about silica or beryllium levels? Because it's not just the workers at Hanford. This, it just doesn't stay on the that area it's in the air we also know that the radiation has been going has been leaching out and it's getting on workers cars and they take it home to their communities right and they don't it's it's the silence Mm -hmm. it's the not knowing when i talk in um the labor hall about h2a workers and not knowing 
seems to be the biggest issue mm-hmm. is nobody knows. Um, and so when you start having the conversation, who is sitting in the audience and what color their skin isn't the issue, it's about they start to have a realization that this is a, a new form of slavery. And that becomes the comment. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's when they're hidden and invisible or whatever the issue is, I think that's when we have the non-caring we don't know. And if it goes on too long, we just, people think it's everyday life. We're getting to the end of our um, program here, and we have a few important announcements. Uh, Michelle, did you have an announcement about the Worker Memorial Day that's coming up? Yes. Um, each year we remember uh, workers that passed away from um, industrial disease, accidents in their workplace, and we remember that. And this year we're remembering on April 27 at noon at the Bellingham Library Lawn. And we'll have a memorial for those workers, and we'll read their names and remember the importance of the work that they do each, um, that they do. And then we also What make, time was that again? It's at noon. Noon. Okay. And what Thank else you. we do is we ask our people to recommit to the fight for workers' safety because it is also the remembrance of having OSHA, um, which is the um, Occupational and Safety and Health. And it's remembering that act and remembering the importance for every worker. Go ahead. And is that April 27th? Correct. It's April 27th. So on April 17th, mm-hmm. we are going to be protesting at the Department of Licensing on Cordata, again demanding that the director of the Department of Licensing resign for her failure in ensuring that her agency was following the governor's executive order to not cooperate with um, Homeland Security. And they released hundreds of thousands of, we believe hundreds of thousands of names to Homeland Security. And Maru Mora Villalpandos is one of those names. And we are continuing our demand that she resign. The governor refuses to remove her. So we're asking him to remove her or for her to resign That'll be at noon at the Department of Licensing on Cordata, near Cordata area there. Mm-hmm. And there is another action uh, for Norma called Keep Norma Home. And that's Monday, April 9th at 9.30 a.m. And it's at the ICE headquarters at 12500 Tukwila International Boulevard. Um, Norma is a mother of five and a wife and she had gotten deportation orders and we just need community to come out and show support and say no to this war on immigrants and immigrant families. Uh, There's another announcement as well here in Bellingham. There's a rapid response workshop for uh, Know Your Rights and documentation on April 8th from 6 to 9 at the First Congregational Church in Bellingham. And if you need more information, you can email welcomerapidresponse at gmail.com, all one word. And, of course, we have our Dignity Vigils every Monday at 1130 in front of City Hall in Bellingham. I think I just want to remind everybody that uh, we're continuing to put pressure on the Department of Labor and Industries to revisit their decision on Sarbanan Farms and finding which was that they found the farm not negli- not negligent in the death of Honesto Silva. Mm-hmm. So we're continuing to pressure the Department of mm-hmm. Labor and Industries to revisit that and 
asked the governor to form an investigative task force on the H-2A program in Washington State. We will continue our campaign here in Whatcom County. We, we want Sarbanan Farms to not use H-2A workers. They also pack their berries under the Nature Ripe label, so we're asking consumers not to buy the Nature Ripe label. And we mm-hmm. will have more forums, more um, educational consumer activities. So keep uh, an, an eye out on the Community to Community Facebook page, and we will continue to announce uh, that. Thank you for all the solidarity from the House of Labor and uh, Racial Justice Coalition for joining forces with us last night and all the other community folks that are supporting us. Thank you for listening to Community Voice Radio Show. Otherwise known as the Iroquois. Talking back home, the Iroquois nations land claims placed us on reservations. Tried to erase us, confining our spaces. Too much hating, self-medicating, and sedating. Yeah, I'm mad at the white man. Y'all are walking on stolen land. Your forefathers are known to me as slaughterers. Your fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and daughters. Your heroes are known to me as villains. Responsible for genocide and mass killing. killing. That's why I, I put up a middle finger on my hand and throw up the piece for the wolf and deer clan. Huh. I ain't a Navajo, Blackfoot, a crow. I rep the Iroquois nations for the next seven generations. Huh. I ain't a Navajo over Seminole. I rep the Iroquois nations. I'm the Indian Rassensation. Indigenous, indigenous lyricist, come on. Indigenous, indigenous, indigenous lyricist, come on. Indigenous, indigenous, indigenous lyricist, come on. Indigenous, indigenous, indigenous lyricist. I'm a tilted and hairy, your new favorite strain. Not waiting on salvation, I don't fear any pain. Elevated, not sedated, no flight to my plane. Constantly contemplative, I fight for indigenous gain. It ain't a comeback, I ain't no pioneer. My native roots go back thousands of years. But I've been on Brooklyn Stoops for over 20 years. And I still want to clap back for the trillet tears. Don't mistake my lack of instigators for fear. I'm here to loot the narrative, abolish trick and barren. I'm here not me to prove to you, we're looking back and staring. My ancestors, I made it through a genocide and famine. So please respect my need to grieve and chill with all the clearing. Indigenous, indigenous, indigenous lyricist. Indigenous, indigenous, indigenous lyricist. Ain't a Navajo, Blackfoot, a crow. I rep the Iroquois nations for the next seven generations. Tell them, tell them, tell them. Ain't a Navajo or a Seminole. I rep the Iroquois nations. I'm the Indian rap sensation. Soul Shadow. Sacred black earth painted, red blood red painted, my brown blood. Take it down, all of your white fangs. Cross paths, twisted arms, y'all try to erase our lies. But we got this down, y'all tripping out here, and it ain't gon' last. Y'all slipping out here, and we calling you out. Y'all slipping out here, and we calling you out. Me acusen, en mi raíces, 
Tradiciones de mi abuela de su abuela Donde quien cara curandera Sabiduría oculta Siete en agua Escucha Trapecilla en mi frente De otro lado Lejano Parece Kikapu Árabe africano Ha, 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 ha Dime tú Sabe bien de tu abuelo Así dime tú Sabe bien de tu abuela Así dime tú Sabe bien de tu abuelo Así dime tú Bye.